and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. This week, we are speaking with BBC Media Action about media for development in Bangladesh. Joining us is Richard Lace, the country director in Bangladesh. Richard has worked in media and development for 15 years in Europe and Africa, as well as Bangladesh, and he has been leading the BBC Media Action Office in Bangladesh since early 2014, and he leads a team of 80 staff to deliver media and communications projects that aim to improve family health and enable people to hold their leaders accountable and help people to improve their economic security and preparedness for disaster. Prior to becoming country director, Richard led BBC Media Action's Bangladesh projects on climate adoption and disaster risk reduction, including initiating, developing and delivering the Amrai Pari project. We are also joined by research manager Arif Al-Mamun. Arif has worked with BBC Media Action in Bangladesh since 2009 and currently manages the in-country research, monitoring and evaluation program in the Bangladesh office. He specialises in quantitative research and has successfully delivered formative and evaluative studies for large-scale donor-funded programmes in health, governance and resilience themes. Arif was the Bangladesh lead for the innovative and ambitious Climate Asia Research Programme, working on study design and delivery as well as analysing the study results to build a comprehensive picture of how different groups of people in Bangladesh live and deal with climate change, environmental issues and extreme weather. As such, he has an in-depth understanding of socio-economic factors that underpin communities' responses to climate change in Bangladesh and strong insights into how media Media and communications can be used to help improve climate resistance in the country. So hi Richard. Hi there, how are you? Good and hi Arif. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. Please could you start by telling us how BBC Media Action work and collaborate with NGOs to create media strategies that support context-specific humanitarian responses? Thanks for the question, Chiba, and thanks for for having us today. Um, You've hit on exactly the right starting point, that the only way, really, that the work that we do can have impact is if we're working in partnership with a big, big range of other actors. And our biggest humanitarian response at the moment is down in Cox's Bazaar in the southeast of Bangladesh, where we have almost a million Rohingya refugees living. Some of them have been there for 30 or more years, and but the, the vast majority only arrived uh, in the middle of 2017. And so we're working really hard down there to try to support them with information, but also to make sure that they're able to contribute to the decisions that are being made as part of the wider humanitarian response, making sure that their voices are heard in those discussions. And it really is a collaboration. So in the work that we do, we are in consortium-style collaborations with other specialist agencies who are working either on media and development or on allied areas like language. And having that mix of expertise and specialist technical assistance inside the response is really, really, really important. But more widely, our work can really only be successful if we're talking and working regularly with the wide range of people who are there in Cox's Bazaar. Now, there's probably 
coming up on 100 different NGOs who are active down in Cox's. And then, of course, there's all the UN agencies. And then very importantly, there's the Bangladesh government as well. And so we have to make sure that we're in really regular contact with all those different people to make sure that what we're doing is useful for them, but also to make sure that the materials and the, the work we're doing with refugees themselves are providing information which is accurate, correct, actionable, practical, and in line with and consistent with what other agencies are doing. So we have dedicated staff whose job it is to play those liaison functions with other agencies. So out of our team of about 40 people in Cox's Bazaar, a good number are dedicated to coordinating and working with and talking to other actors, not just NGOs, but the UN and government as well. Great. So could you give us just some context about the refugee camps? Like, what are the conditions? How many people are you trying to help? What sort of situation are they coming from? And also, because you work with media, what type of media sources or channels are available in the camps? Cox's Bazaar is an area of Bangladesh which historically is relatively underdeveloped. It's one of the poorest areas of the country and it has historically had its own fair share of problems itself. It's quite a disaster prone area. It's cyclones come through that neck of the woods very, very frequently. And it's also quite a remote area in terms of its ability to access health services, education services, those sorts of things. And so the starting point in itself was not fantastic in that it was one of the more deprived areas of the country. Since the middle of 2017, the current influx of Rohingya people coming into Bangladesh has meant that the population in that area is now swollen very, very rapidly. And those refugees are almost all living in makeshift settlements, strung out in a range of camps, probably about sort of 50 kilometers end to end, I would say. So it's a big, big settlements. I think people are saying it's the biggest refugee camp in the world right now. Inside the camps, it's congested. There's not much space. It's very hilly and undulating. There are, I would say, relatively good levels of basic infrastructure now. It's taken some time, but you will find that there is more or less in every place now, there is water, there are toilets, there are basic facilities that people need to survive. But it is really a survival existence. It's not a sustainable situation. It's not a situation that you would want people to be living in long term. And so in that context, there's, it's really important that we continue to make sure we listen to and understand what refugees are worried about so that we can make sure that the humanitarian assistance that's being provided by the response is in line with their need and is in line with the types of things that they're concerned about. Arif might want to talk a little bit about media channels and, and the sort of communication preferences that the community have got. Yeah, thank you, Richard. I think what for Cox's Bazaar, since it is a I mean, remote area and Bangladeshi local community already also have some issues with communication problems like channels like TV penetration or radio penetration. And it is true for Rohingya refugees as well. And what we found that in terms of media access in the camp, most of the areas have radio penetration in terms of, you know, like frequencies or uh, coverage. But since they did not have any equipments like radios, earlier it was uh, quite hard for us to communicate with them or like communicating any kind of communication product. But after that, 
NGOs and other UN organizations, they started distributing radios. Now they have access to radios, not everyone, but it is definitely a better compared to two years ago. And they have less access to TVs and they are not allowed to own any kind of mobile phone. Although we found that there are people who are using mobile phones and Bangladeshi SIMs, but they are illegal for sure. And the ownership, I should say, that mobile phones are young males and Rohingya refugees. The gender difference is quite high in terms of any kind of issues or themes or, or index. So in the digital literacy or media literacy, they are quite behind. So they do not have any access to media or they do not have access to phones. They use their husbands or elder brothers or father's phone. They do not have access to radio. Males have the radios. We found that they heard from their husbands or elder brothers or fathers about the news from the radio. Interestingly, the, the main sources of information what we found is that word of mouth, and which is understandable from our side, but it was quite interesting and surprising for us since they did not have any access to media in Myanmar and they do not have access to, like initially have any access to media in Bangladesh when they come here after the influx. So word of mouth become their main sources of information. Thank you. That's really interesting. And thank you also for touching on the gender imbalance. I think that's really important. You mentioned that they're not allowed to have mobile phones. Why is that? So the government of Bangladesh restricts ownership of SIM cards, actually. The mobile phone itself is, is not necessarily illegal, but having a data or a voice connection through a Bangladeshi SIM card is restricted to people who have Bangladeshi citizenship. Yeah. So the government of Bangladesh imposes that rule. And of course, there are ways around it, but it's technically illegal for a Rohingya refugee to own a SIM card. And do you think that limits their access to information somewhat? Yeah, of course, in an information ecosystem, there will always be ways that people can find to get around a restriction like that. And what we see in Cox's is a lot of people using informal, almost content sharing networks. So if you go into the camp, you can go and buy for about 10 pence a copy of the latest Bollywood movie if you want, and they will put it on a SD card on your phone or they will Bluetooth it across to your phone. Same with music, songs, those sorts of things. So there is a, a market in content which people are able to access even if they don't have the ability to connect to the internet. There are some refugees who are connected to the internet in some way or other, either through a Myanmar SIM card or through a Bangladeshi one. And there's definitely the use of particularly closed social media. WhatsApp and Emo are very, very popular and used, again, predominantly by young men. Yeah. So it's not completely internet dark, but definitely there's not widespread access to the internet, not just through regulatory restriction, but also because it's relatively expensive for that population. So definitely that's a disadvantage if we're trying to provide information or we're trying to engage people in conversations without that access to communication technology, it's much more difficult to do that and obviously a lot more expensive to go and talk face to face to everybody. Great, yeah, that's really interesting. So as well as digital and media literacy, as you mentioned, how do things like language then come into play? And what are the strategies around this in your use of 
technology, media, or even spreading information that then spreads by word of mouth? So the language is not entirely Bengali language. It's, of course, Rohingya language, but similar to the Bengali language, like particular dialect to the Coxbazar or Chittagonian region. And initial research showed that it is like 60% similar to that particular dialect. It's not like Bangla or Bengali language. It's more like English in Scottish accent. So something like that. And Rohingya language, what we found that and understood that they do not have any written form. And that particularly poses a bit of problem or tricky situation for us to share any kind of information as well because they do not have uh, any written format of the language and I can discuss about how we tackle it in terms of research perspective but I think teachers can shed more light on how we tackle it in the in the program perspective of mm. our communication message. It would almost be easier if the language was completely different Yeah, because then you would say okay it's a different language we need to deal with that but because it's a bit similar to the type of Bangla that's spoken in the southeast of the country, it's quite easy to get sucked in to thinking that actually you can just speak in the right type of Bangla and people will understand you and you'll be close enough. But by doing that, actually, you miss all the important nuance. So you miss the fact that the word for storm, for example, is a completely different word in Rohingya to that that is used in local Bangla. There are other really key words which are not the same. And if you then go and make content or you're having conversations or you're undertaking research and you don't have that sort of full picture, then people will just nod through, but actually they're not understanding what you're saying and you're not understanding what they're saying. So that's one of the key reasons why we work really closely with Translators Without Borders, who are another international NGO who are providing translation services, but they're also providing really critical linguistic research into the language and making sure that not just us, but the whole of the response really has a good understanding about where those language differences lie. One of the very interesting things is that they've discovered that women in the Rohingya community actually have quite a different vocabulary from men. And so when you're talking to a woman, you need to be using different words and different language than if you're interacting with men. And that's really, really interesting and something we haven't seen before. Now, for a team in Bangladesh, which is used to making programming to cover the whole country, we're actually we're really lucky in that almost the entire country in Bangladesh speaks the same language. So it's not like somewhere like Ethiopia, where you have many different languages within one country. So for us, that's quite an adaptation. We've had to change our processes to deal with creating content in a language that some of our producers don't speak. And that's been a bit of a learning curve for us. Great. And could you also give us just a bit of insight into the methods that you use for researching? Yes, I can say about that. I think for research, we have to adapt in terms of methodologies if compared with our general approach of research. Like we used to have in Bangladesh before starting the project or any kind of media program, we used to have focus on qualitative research, like focus group discussions or in-depth interviews, this kind of or community assessments. For quantitative research or evaluation, we used to have like large scale surveys where we have complete sampling frame and like portal list to identify in like sample and population, something like that. But it is not true for, for the Rohingya community because we they what we understand that for us to conduct 
qualitative research for focus group discussions or any kind of issues. It's not really that simple because they are living in a congested situation, they have other things to do and they are not very much interested to discuss and it is very hard to find people to discuss or research. That's why we have to adapt like earlier the focus group discussions were eight people, now we are adapting it to mini focus group discussions like five. We are doing more in-depth interviews with one-to-one so that we understand more with the community leaders and like that. And what we found that we really do not have much idea about this community and since the emergency situation is evolving every day and the needs are dire and our production team who are so many contents for them, they need the information right now because we did not have any information like about the social values, cultural values, religious values, how they discuss, how they talk, what are their heroes, who are their like entertainment mood. So they need information. So to add up that we started to doing weekly focus group discussions in different camps. It's more like having information or feeding channel for the people or the persons who are working to make different contents. Along with that, we are also doing other research as well, like community feedbacks, collecting from different information centers, uh, listener groups for different programs and their feedback and identify their concerns. So as a researcher, we are also adapting to different methodologies and tools. And of course, as there are language barriers, we are more lean towards the translators or interpreters and what we found that it is not that simple because they have the tendency to summarize it's like human nature when a discussion is happening we have the tendency to summarize it and and throw it to the people who are not understanding because it is easier so we had to train them about the research ethics we had to train them about the methodologies and how not to summarize everything because for research you need to know the details because that can make the difference in in terms of communication so we train those translators and interpreters to be more open so that's how we are conducting research and also i think it's a learning curve that is all the time for us and we are learning every day and trying to adapt to the situation and helping the team at best we can. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So from the insights that you've gained, what can you say about the wants and needs of these refugee groups and what sort of content has been created to respond to this and on what sort of media, using what types of technologies? The answer is many and varied things. So as you would expect, the things that people are worried about shift and change over time. Um, And we've seen some quite big changes over the past almost two years that we've been working on it. There are some things which are there quite regularly. So there's a constant flow of worries about the fairness of distribution efforts. So how people can make sure that they're getting the relief items, the rice or the non-food items that they're entitled to. There's, I would say, relatively constant background of people who are worried about sanitation and the quality of the toilets and those sorts of practical worries. So those things come and go and they, they have peaks and troughs, but they're there more or less all the time. What we found then is there are other topics which became more prevalent as time went on. So one of the big things towards the middle or end of last year was people worried about not 
being able to cook properly because the wood supply in the area has basically run out because all the trees have been cut down. So there was a move by the community to start, you know, they were burning plastic, they were burning solid waste because they ran out of firewood. And one of the things I say that the response has done very well is reacted to that and has started distributing paraffin or LPG stoves and fuel that people can then use for cooking. There's also been, for example, back a few months ago, some big worries around rumours that there was a repatriation process going to start and people were very, very concerned that they were going to be forced to go back to Myanmar and didn't want to do that. And so all of a sudden you see in the data real worries about that surfacing. So it changes over time and different people, obviously in different places, different ages, different genders, different geographies, they all have their own concerns. And, and what we try to do is pull some of those things together so that the response overall and the humanitarian professionals working across the different agencies have got access to that big picture of what people are worried about. Then in terms of what we create, we've got a big, big range of communication products, which we produce and then distribute across different agencies. The idea being that if everybody is using the same products, then the way that people are being communicated with can be consistent and clear across the whole response. So if agency A is trying to communicate about vaccinations in one camp and agency B is doing it down the road in another camp, the fact that they're using the same materials and the same approach means that that communication isn't going to be contradictory or confusing for the community. So we've done a lot on health, we've done a lot on vaccinations, we've done a lot on cyclone preparedness, we've done a lot on you know basic things around sanitation, hand washing, hygiene, those types of things. And then as the response has moved on, we've moved into perhaps slightly more complicated topics. So we're in the middle of a piece at the moment around gender-based violence and knowing that actually it's a highly prevalent problem within the Rohingya community. But obviously that's different from a piece of communication about hand washing. With hand washing, you can say, right, it's really important to wash your hands. You should do it after you go to the toilet and before you eat food and here's how. And it's quite a straightforward piece of communication to do. Not fully straightforward, but it's relatively simple. But if you're trying to change people's attitudes connected with gender, and you're trying to encourage a community to not be accepting of violence against women, that's a much more difficult thing to do, and it takes much longer, and you have a completely different communication approach to doing it. So that's the sort of shift we've seen in the last year or so, is as well as still doing those critical pieces of information, we're also now moving into communication work, which is trying to shift attitudes and social norms as well. And how would you communicate, say, methods on how to wash your hands and sanitation versus information against gender violence? So for hand washing, we would, or we have, created a range of different products that frontline workers can use when they're talking to the community. So we have flashcards that they can use, we have animations, we have audio pieces, and I think even for hand washing we've maybe done some stickers for buckets, or I'm thinking about water purification maybe, so that there's a range of tools that those community workers can access, which helps them then improve the consistency of the communication they're doing with the community. But they're quite factual, and they're relatively direct. So the difference with something like gender-based violence is that it wouldn't work to just put out a poster saying, stop beating people up. That's not how people think. 
So with GBV, what we've done is worked with actually one of the people in the main BBC looking at a radio drama. So there's 20 episodes of radio drama focusing on gender-based violence and child marriage. And what you see in that drama is characters who are changing their own views and their own behavior over the course of 20 episodes. And the listener can go on a journey with them and hopefully come to a realization that the situation that they thought was normal might actually not be okay and that they should try within their community to address that. But it's not a simple didactic communication. It's one which brings that listener along with the characters in the drama, gets them to resonate with the drama itself and starts them trying to think a little bit differently as they go through 20 episodes in a series. So now I just want to speak about your work across Bangladesh in general. How does that context and the aims and projects differ to the way that you work specifically in the refugee camps? So with our development programs in the rest of the country, we can generally be a lot more long term. We can be planning ahead a lot more. And we generally don't have to be quite as reactive to events. In Cox's, like Arif was saying, we maybe have to respond within a few days to something that's happened. Whereas the programs that we have in the rest of the country, of course, we want them to adapt and learn as they go along. But we don't have to be reacting quite as quickly. In an ideal world, we may have up to a year of pre-planning and research and preparation and design before we get anywhere near implementation. For example, it's finished now, but we had a major piece of maternal and child health work that we were doing in, across the country, which involved, again, some drama, this time television, looking at social norms and attitudes around childbirth and maternal health. But before we went anywhere near writing a script or casting people or getting the lighting or the set sorted out, we spent, I think, more than a year on formative research and planning and preparation so that we really understood what the theory of change for that project was. We could go and test bits of that and make sure that, as far as possible, we knew that the approach we were taking was going to work before we started. And another project that I read about was the Amrai Pari project, which was also a television production. It was. Yeah. It was a fantastic television production. Yeah. Anyone who has ever seen Challenge Annika or DIY SOS or Extreme Makeover, it was that sort of idea where a community in rural Bangladesh would take on a challenge and would have two or three days to do something which was going to make their community more resilient to climate change and extreme weather. And in showing that on television, we not only gave the viewers an idea of the types of sort of simple replicable techniques that could be used at community level, but also seeing another community do it really broke down some of the barriers to them feeling that they maybe needed help to take action and made them feel that they were able to act for themselves without waiting for government or NGOs to come and help them out. And you've mentioned television in both the projects that you've spoken about. Is that really like the main media that you use to engage with people across the country in general and why so rather than let's say social media mobile yeah so i think that in bangladesh tv penetration is 
quite high. More than 80% of the people regularly watch TV and it's been increasing year to year. Uh, for digital or social media platform, it is increasing though. It, it is rapidly increasing among the youth, especially and urban youth is like more penetrated by uh, social media and digital platforms. To give you a bit of context in Bangladesh, so I think the 70% of the population, almost 70% of the population lives in rural areas, whereas 30% people lives in urban areas. And among those 30%, I, I can say like only 15 to 20% people lives in metro areas. So if you put that into the context, I think overall in Bangladesh, TV is the main media uh, over a decade. And now radio is uh, like FM radio also has penetrations especially among the metro areas and urban youth are quite engaged to the FM radio channels and social media and digital platforms are still mostly used by the young urban people and if you say social media in Bangladesh it is literally Facebook. Okay, I had a question on how the engagement with content differs, say on television versus radio versus Facebook. How would you measure the different types of media? Because I think Facebook is quite, well, in a quantitative way, easily measurable. But how do you measure then the response to television and how the audience engages with that? The response to radio and how the audience engages with that? Yeah, so for TV or radio, it's quite simple, to be honest. Since the penetration is quite high and urban and rural people are watching TV right now, like more than 85% have the access to TV. Radio is like around 20%. So it is easier for us to measure any kind of impact or any kind of program's output in terms of television output because we have the experience and we did lots of large-scale surveys to measure the impact of the programs or to identify the needs of the people in terms of communication or, or information. But for example, like we did a randomized control trial on the television program that Richard was mentioning earlier uh, on the maternal and neonatal health issues. And I think we are the second country in the world that conducted or applied this randomized control trial on media output and results were quite interesting and the, for the first time we identify the causal effect of a media program on people's knowledge attitudes and behavior for social media it is quite tricky because it is a learning curve for us as well it's not about viewers it's more like pages for us, since we are not in like those IT people or who have access to like all sorts of digital information, for general researchers like us, page views or clicks, engagement or reach is quite new for us. And it's not about only what people are watching. And the impact is not there if, if you do not define any kind of behavioral outputs. Uh, the measuring the impact for social media content is quite tricky. To tackle that, what we are adopting and trying to implement is like panel studies. And we found that it is quite helpful and it is a quite robust method to understand the impact of any kind of social media outputs. Although I should say that anyone who wants to use panel study for social media outputs, they have to be quite persistent in terms of retentions of the respondents. You have to really create good rapport with the respondents and you have to motivate them to be engaged with your, the content because social media 
things are changing all the time so keeping them engaged and motivated to the page and to give you feedback is quite tricky that's really interesting because again it just goes back to really understanding the context and how effective the response can be across the different media so those are all of my questions were there any other insights or projects that you'd want to highlight before we close i mean the only thing we haven't really touched on so much is the the outreach component of some of the national work so mass media can go so far but one of the things that the rct showed really quite starkly is that there is a huge improvement in the impact of a program if you're able to couple up a media output which provides information and inspiration with a process that people can use to discuss that afterwards. And that could be just watching someone on television discussing it, but even better if they can actually actively engage in discussion. And we see big changes or big increases in intention to practice impact and in attitudinal impact and in knowledge impact if people after having been exposed to the product are then able to discuss it and so more and more we're finding that we need to work just like in Cox's with other partners who have the ability to take our material even outside mass media channels directly into communities and use it as a a tool to inspire that discussion. So we work more and more with government here now. We're working with a lot of the government's frontline health professionals to help give them resources which they can use to spark off discussions at doorstep level or in community meetings. We work a lot with other NGOs to do that. We work with the Red Crescent Society to do that. And I think that is a really growing part of our work is that we need to not just put things on television or on radio and obviously on social media where there is that discussive element because people can comment and question and discuss things with each other but actually getting the material out into communities face to face is really important part of what we do now which it maybe wasn't 10 years ago fantastic thank, thank you, you very much lovely to be meeting with you and thank uh, you yeah. thank you very much and good luck with your projects Discover more about this topic by accessing the following resources available in the show notes on our website. Follow BBC Media Action's Facebook page at BBC Media Action and follow their Instagram at BBC Media Action. And you can discover the work of BBC Media Action Bangladesh on their website. Read What Matters, The Rohingya Crisis One Year On, a blog post by Richard Lace on the importance of communication in humanitarian responses. Go to What Matters, the BBC Media Action Community Feedback Summaries, to learn more about the response to their efforts in Cox's Bazaar. Discover examples of the community-facing products produced by BBC Media Action to explain cyclone warning signals in Cox's Bazaar, and that's titled CXB Multimedia, Explaining the Cyclone Warning Signals. Read an evaluation of some BBC Media Action work in Cox's Bazaar in the Evaluation and Information Needs Update. 
also read the BBC Media Action Report on gender-based violence in Cox's Bazaar, titled Violence Against Women Within the Rohingya Refugee Community, Prevalence, Reasons and Implications for Communication. Learn more about one of the organisations that BBC Media Action is partnering with, Translators Without Borders, and the work that they are doing with the Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Watch how a TV show in Bangladesh helps improve people's resilience. A short clip about Amrai Pari, the project by BBC Media Action to help people in Bangladesh to prepare for and respond to extreme weather and natural disasters. Learn more about the impact of the Amrai Pari project in the BBC Media Action Report, Strengthening Resilience Through Media in Bangladesh. And read, Can a Health Drama and Discussion Show Affect the Drivers of Behavioural Change? That's the BBC Media Action report on using media to improve maternal and newborn health in Bangladesh. And finally, follow Hello Check, an audience-facing youth brand by BBC Media Action Bangladesh and the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA. You can find us online at www.soascodingclub.com and follow us on Facebook at SOAS Coding Club and on Twitter at SOAS Coding Club. We broadcast every two weeks, so tune in to discover what's next in your global digital futures. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.